Welcome to the Roots Podcast, brought to you from the Training and Equipping Ministry of Chanctonbury, exploring revival, church, leadership and culture. Discover more about our community at chanctonbury.org.uk. Hey, should we go on a trip? Should we go on holiday? It's, yeah, uh, actually, we can travel again now, sort of. Remember the old days when people used to go on, you know, get on planes and go to other countries and the weather was a bit warmer. So let's go to Turkey. Hooray. Anybody been to Turkey on holiday? One or two? Yeah. Okay. So here we go. Here's a, here's a, a, a map of Turkey. There we go. Um, now, the, if you can see that, so the bottom, the bottom right corner, it shows you where Turkey is. So this is the, this is the Roman province of Asia. So... Um, if you go to Istanbul, the, the bridge there across the Bosphorus is sort of called the bridge between Europe and Asia, because of course you get into Turkey and then you quite quickly get into the area of the Kurds and Syria, and then you go across to, you know, India and all that kind of stuff. And that's what uh, that's what um, Alexander the Great did. So Alexander was in Greece, uh, well he's in Macedonia actually to the north, and he came across and he conquered the Mediterranean basin. Then he went across all the way over to northern northern India. Extraordinary. And the, by the way, the Greeks imposed their culture on the cities, on the, on the countries that they went to. And you can find all across as cities called Alexandria, because Alexander was a shrinking violet, but he founded lots of cities and named them after himself. <laughs> yeah, good old Alexander. Good to have confidence, isn't it? Eh? And, uh, but he died age 33. But because the Greeks imposed their culture, they made everybody speak Greek. The Romans had a completely different approach. The Romans were accommodationists. So the Romans kind of said, well, we'll worship your gods, you worship our gods, we'll speak your language, you speak our language. So, so because Greek was already established, they didn't change that. That's why Greek is the lingua franca, the language of the whole thing. Again, why the New Testament is written in Greek. Now, we're at the... Uh, I always get my East and my West model up. West is on that side. Of the west there. So we're at the... We're at the that, there must be a name for that. I don't know. So we're at the west end of Turkey. That's where the Roman province of Asia is. And uh, it is worth just... Most Bibles have a map of the back. It is worth doing because there's quite a lot of geographical references in different letters and so on. If you've got 1 Peter, look at Acts chapter 2. You know, we are Jews from Pontus and Bithynia and all that kind of stuff. So it is worth getting a bit of background information. Now, um, I've put on that map... Well, I've, I've pinched it, actually. Look, these are... They're not the seven churches. Church is the wrong word. The, the, the word is ecclesiae, which we, you, you'll recognize, yeah? Because we get the word ecclesiastical from ecclesia. My house is insured by ecclesiastical insurance. They're very good, actually. Um, they repaired our drains one Christmas. It cost a fortune. It was great. They're really good. So ecclesiastical. So, uh, but the ecclesia, we, the, trouble, the reason I don't like the word church is if you say church, you think of buildings and institutions, Church of England and hierarchies and bishops and all that kind of stuff. That's not what the word church in the New Testament, that's not the word, that's not what the word ecclesia means. So that's why you shouldn't really translate it with the word church. So, because church comes from kuriakos, meaning of the Lord. So it's a building that belongs to the Lord, kuriakos. And in Scot if you're Scottish, it's a kirk. So you're quite close to the Greek there. The ecclesia is two things. In the Old Testament, the ecclesia is the people of Israel that the that the some of the old versions the authorized version the tint coverdale version say the congregation of Israel it's the people 
But the ecclesia in a Greek city was also the gathering of the citizens to make decisions. Now, that is free men over the age of 30. So, okay, kind of democracy, but not as you know it, Jim. That, um, but it, but the, the word ecclesia means gathering. So actually, in my commentary, I say I don't use the word church. I use the assembly, because it's people coming together, or the gathering of folks. So, so this is the look, because these, these places didn't have buildings, so they wouldn't have read in, the, the, the lector wouldn't have been standing in a church building. They'd been standing in a home, in an atrium, or outdoors, or wherever they gathered by a river, or wherever it was. So um, here are the seven cities and John is writing to the Christians, the Ecclesia, to the followers of Jesus in these cities. Now look, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Now, that order is, well, it looks like that order is important, isn't it? Because that's what the risen Jesus says to John. Write down what you see and send it to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira. And then chapters 2 and 3, the messages are in that order, right? What do you notice about that order? Yeah, it's just in a sequence, isn't it? So if you were traveling, those are, there are, those are major trade routes there. So, so that, that is the route you would travel to visit in that order, right? So, so John is kind of saying to us, this is a letter, and it matters who I'm writing to. These are real people in a real place. I wish somebody had told me that years ago. Because I first came across the book of Revelation when I was a teenager. And I was going to the Roman Catholic church. I came to personal faith in an Anglican church. And a friend of mine at school was a Baptist. So he invited me to his midweek Baptist church Bible study. So I was a bit of a mixed up kid. And we went to this Bible study group on a Wednesday. And the, the leader said, uh, I think God's telling us to read the book of Revelation. And we all went, oh. And... So we, we read chapter one, and we kind of went, oh, this is a bit kind of, oh, I don't know what's going on here. It's a bit weird. <laughs> bit of a bumpy ride. Oh, vision of Jesus. Well, oh, that's, that's good. Although he looks a bit weird, because he's got a long robe and he's got a sash. We didn't know it then, but actually the text says he's got a sash, the, the gold sash around his breasts. Which is a bit odd, isn't it? Because the last time I looked, I've got a chest. Anyway... If you want to know about that, ask me afterwards. Uh, there's something weird going on there. And, and, and he's got legs like bronze. Oh, okay, it's all kind of pretty awesome, isn't it? Whoa. Okay. And then we go, the messages to, this, to these, well, we thought they were letters to seven churches. The messages to the seven gatherings, as they are. And uh, we thought, well, I've never been to Turkey. <sighs> don't I? Well, that's gone. And the, and the leader said, don't worry, I've got a book that tells you what the book of Revelation means. And we went, ah, Useful, my commentary. No, it wasn't. Uh, I think the trouble was, I think we probably were spending time reading that book rather than reading the book of Revelation. But anyway, so that's the danger, isn't it? That you end up, something else gets in the way of you actually reading the text. But So anyway, he said, ah, these churches are not seven churches. There are seven ages of the church. We all went, ooh. And then we thought, which age are we in? Answer, we're in the, are we, are we halfway through history? Are we a third of the way through history? Oh, we're in the end times, aren't we? Of course we are. Of course we are. In the year 1,000, they're reading this, halfway through, through are we? We're in the end times, of course they thought that. Year 1,000, thousands in the book of Revelation. Yeah, I, is that for me? 
Danny. Round of applause, Danny. Look at that. Come <laughs> and got me a coffee. I didn't drink too far. That's really kind of you. I'm going to have to set some group work now so I can drink my coffee without everybody watching. Okay, so, um, the, so every Christian has always thought we're in the end times, haven't they? No Christian has ever said, nah, we're only halfway through. Plenty of time. Chill out. Jesus isn't coming back anytime soon. They never have, have they? Just read a bit of church history. The year 1260. Oh, my word, Europe was in an uproar because the number 1260 is in the book of Revelation. Oh, world's going to end, all right? Christians have always thought that. Year 200, the world's about to end. Okay, so then we were in a Baptist church. We looked around and goes, Laodicea, you are lukewarm. We went, yeah, look at those Anglicans. Yeah, they're lukewarm. Yeah, look at them. This is definitely about us, Laodicea, yeah. Oh, is God going to spit you out of our mouth? The Baptists are going to take over, we are. Yeah, we are. I was sitting there thinking, on Sundays or whatever. All right? But if somebody just said, no, here's a map, all right? If somebody just showed me that, I'd have gone, it's not the seven ages of the church. These are actual places, natural people. This is a letter. He's writing to people, right? So, but here's the question. It makes all the difference, doesn't it, to actually recognize what is it like to live in Laodicea in the, seventh century, in the first century? Have you been there? Well, you can go there physically, but you can't time travel. But we can read books and we can read histories and we can read Strabo's Geographica, great source book all about the geography of the area. It's online, it's free, the wonders of the internet. Did you know that? Did you know you can read Strabo's Geographica online? No, you didn't. Well, you can. Okay, go do it. Because it just tells you what he visits Laodicea. He tells you what it's like. So you can, you can imagine. You can, you can, because uh, Strabo visited there. So let's go, well, let's have a look at a verse. Turn to, I mean, it's one you'll know really, really well. Revelation 3, let's read, what, 14, 15, 16. Easier to find at the back of the Bible. It's quite good, isn't it? Not sort of struggling around for Zechariah or Obadiah in the middle. It's a lot easier. Just turn to the back and turn a few pages in. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation or the rule of God's creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm... Oh, that's interesting. What version is this? NRSV. Hmm. Okay. It should actually say hot or cold there. Other people got hot or cold and cold or hot. It is, isn't it? My naughty translator has changed it. Ooh, okay. don't know why that is. Yeah. I know your works. You are neither... First time is cold, cold or hot. Neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either cold or hot. Hmm, okay, fine. All right, James. Okay, so because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, hot or cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Okay, so here's the question. What does it mean to be hot? Sorry, but be careful. <laughs> Let me qualify that. In spiritual terms, <laughs> actually nowadays it's all about being sick, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, he is, Jesus is going to be sick. Now that makes it very confusing. All right. Some of you are looking baffled about that. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Fine. Relax. Okay. So in spiritual terms, what does it mean to be hot? Say, passionate, fervent. That's a great word. Fervent. On fire. We're just swapping one metaphor for another, aren't we? On fire, yeah, okay. It's a good thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good thing. It's a good, it's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's a good thing, okay. Uh, what does cold mean? 
apathetic, yeah. indifferent, not interested. not interested. Richard Dawkins, no, he's worse than that, isn't he? But yeah, okay. Is that a good thing? No. No, okay. So what does lukewarm mean? <laughs> Anglican. We're searching for the middle way, aren't we, via media? We don't want to be extreme, do we? Lukewarm. Okay. All right. That cannot be what this verse means. That cannot be what this verse means. For three reasons. First, let's go on holiday and play some holiday music. Dun, 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 get in the plane. Let's go to Laodicea. Well, let's go to Pamukkale. The next slide, please. I keep clicking on here. It's no good. There we go. Do you recognize that picture? Some of you, remember in the old days where you used to go on holiday, you might go into a travel agent, see a brochure of Turkey. That was always on the front cover. Pamukkale means cotton castles. It's not cotton, it's rock. Because Pamukkale, ancient Hierapolis, which means holy city, is on the opposite lying side of the valley to uh, Laodicea. So you can stand Laodicea, look across the valley. I'll show you a picture in a minute. That's what you see. Because they had hot springs. And you used to be able to go there and you used to be able to sit in those, the hot springs. What happens is the hot water dissolves the calcium carbonate. And then as it comes down and cascades down the hillside and the, and the rock settles out, it forms these terraces. Yeah, did you been there? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, they put loads of hotels there. They drained all the water off. The water dried up and those stopped working and you couldn't go in them anymore. So now they've demolished all the hotels. So there's a lesson there about the environment, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, we, we went there when we were first married 25, 26 years ago, and you could actually go in those terraces. You can't do it now because they're fragile. But, so there we go, tourist attraction, lots of money in the ancient world, very wealthy. Hot water is good for healing. You go there for, to take the waters, don't you? Like you used to go to, to Bath and other places. Leamington Spa, it's a spa town, right? Money to be made. So, there, next slide, please. So this is the small theatre at Laodicea. And you can actually see a little smudge, a white smudge at the top left of the picture there. That is what you've just seen. That's across the other side of the valley. That's Pamukkale. Now, the problem is, keep going, next slide. The problem is that um, you can see here, this is the main street of Laodicea. It's been reconstructed. When I was there, there was a guy with a hammer trying to get two bits of stone back together again. It was a bit of an alarming way to do archaeology. But you're on, a, you're on a, a terrace halfway down the mountain, you see. Now, when you've got hot springs at the top of the mountain... By the way, just along the valley there is, La is Colossae. You've heard of Colossae? Paul wrote a letter to it. Actually, it, it was destroyed and by an earthquake and never refounded, so there's just ruins there, unexcavated. Um, but they had cold springs there, which is what you want. In Turkey, it's 45 degrees in the summer. You want cold springs. That's good for, you know, it's refreshing, isn't it? Now, Laodicea, you're halfway down the hill, so you've got the hot springs coming, and they come down the hill. By the time it gets to Laodicea, the water is... Hmm, what does that do to your pipes? Keep going. So it furs up your pipes. There's, some, some, there's loads of littered little clay pipes around there. Next slide as well. Some, look at them. Look at that. I tell you what, the Calgon, Calgon salesman would have had a field day there, wouldn't he? <laughs> right? Just getting rid of your kettle fur. You're, you're, you're furry up. And they keep going. If you go, um, that, we, we actually climbed, we stopped our bus there. That's the plateau in the distance with Laodicea. Actually, from the very distance, you could, I didn't realize that. You can actually still see Pamukkale, that white smudge on the horizon. But this is the aqueduct. Most aqueducts in the ancient world were just blocks of stone. They weren't fancy arches, too expensive. Blocks of stone, hole in, stick them together, run your water through it, okay? So look inside the pipe, and what do you find? You find, oh, um, this is the farmer and his daughter thinking, what is this weird Englishman doing climbing over our field where we're keeping our sheep? There's the aqueduct. And then if you go on, there, look what's inside. It's all furred up. So, 
If you boil water and uh, then you leave it to stand, then you try and make tea from the lukewarm water and you, you pour out the dregs of the kettle and the kettle fur, and it's all, what, here, what do you want to do? Blah, throw it out. You see, hot water is good for something. It does something. Cold water is good. It does something. It's refreshing. Lukewarm water is good for nothing. That's what this verse is about. They're good for nothings. They may have had the most fantastic praise and worship. The sun choruses, the spirit came. They were slain in the spirit. They spoke in tongues. When they went out the door of wherever they were meeting, they had no effect. They did nothing. They didn't bring healing and they didn't bring refreshment. Now, go back to the verse. What does it say? This is why it's really important that my translation here is wrong. Because Jesus says, I know that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either hot or cold. In other words, you see, he's swapping them around. It's not good and bad. They're both good things. They're interchangeable. You can be one or the other. Jesus doesn't mind. If cold meant indifferent, why on earth would Jesus say, I wish that you were indifferent rather than Anglican? Come on, Jesus. At least Anglicans are halfway there. Eh? God, Jesus doesn't want us to be like, he wouldn't rather be Richard Dawkins than Anglican. Doesn't make sense, does it? But also, look what he says. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, I know your works or deed, your erga, what you put your energy into, what you're doing. Here's a controversial thing to claim. In the New Testament, judgment is always on the basis of works. <laughs> Just let that sink in. Every single text says judgment or works. What does Paul say? 1 Corinthians 3. Every person's work will be tested by fire. Because faith in the New Testament is not some interior disposition about how I think about Jesus. It's about the thing that shapes my life and therefore shapes the work of my hands. The old thing saying, you know, is if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? The New Testament knows nothing of faith which doesn't shape life and works. Chapter 19, the saints rest and their deeds go with them because Jesus comes. Jesus loves us as we are, but loves us too much to leave us as we are. He gives us new life and that new life is made shown in works. Charlie, Ephesians chapter 2, he has rescued us, he has turned us from enemies to friends, he's given us peace, he's made from body and he's given us works that were prepared for us to do, right? He's called us to a life of good works, of blessing our neighbor, of loving people, of showing hospitality, of sharing our goods. You know, when John the Baptist comes and says, the wrath of God is coming, and people come to be baptized, and he goes, you brood of vipers, why have you come to me? What should we do? What should we do then? What does he say? He doesn't say, trust in the Lord Jesus and look forward to going to heaven. He says, if you've got two shirts, take one and give it to someone who has none. If you have food, if you have, has anybody here got more food in their fridge than they can eat today? Okay, John the Baptist says, go and give it to someone who hasn't got any. If you repent and trust in God, that's what your life is going to look like. And that's exactly what the book of Revelation says. That's why Revelation is the most Christian book in the Bible, right? It says it all. It doesn't say anything you can't find anywhere else. But it just says it in these especially powerful and vivid ways. So that's just if we go on holiday to Turkey, this is what we find. Now, okay, that raises a question, doesn't it? It raises a question. How can I just read the Bible on my own in my room if I need to know all this stuff? And the answer is back in Revelation 1 verse 3. The Bible wasn't in the first place given us to read in our rooms on our own. It's good if you read the Bible on your own. But it's even better if you read it with other people. 
So Paul says to Timothy in his dying words, he says, do not neglect the public reading of the scriptures. Now, I'm sure you're not like this, but I go to churches. I went to a church yesterday, not my church. And it's an evangelical church, and we're all about the Bible. And, uh, you know, we're wanting to hear what God has to say. We had one measly Bible reading. We had about, we had, it was John, uh, Luke 3, 7 to 18. How many verses is that? I can never do that, 7 to 18. Well, 18 minus 7 is 9, but then you include both. So it's actually 10 verses, isn't it? Okay, so did I get that sum right? Was that right? It's, it's, baffling, it's a bit puzzling, isn't it? Okay, so... We had 10 measly verses read to us out loud. We're supposed to be an evangelical church. We're supposed to believe the Bible. If you're a boring Anglican, you read the psalm for the day, maybe two of them. You read an Old Testament reading. You definitely read an epistle. And then you read the gospel. And you take the gospel and you parade and everyone stands up. And right. Now, I don't know whether you actually do anything that you hear, but you've had five scriptural readings. That looks to me like a church that's listening to God, doesn't it, you? But I've no idea what you're doing, so I can't, I, I changed that. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. He's going to tell me off, he's going to tell me off. But, you know, but we need to be... Now, the thing is that, that how do I, how, if I'm on my own, how do I know this stuff? The answer is I don't. But you see, there's one lecture where everybody's listening, including archaeologists, including biblical scholars, including... So we just need to talk to each other. My study, I sit in my study, and as I read the Bible, I'm surrounded by 1,256 people to help me. It's a big room. I haven't actually got the people. What I've got is their books. That's why people write books so that, or they write blogs, so that we can share with one another our insights and things. Now, again, it doesn't mean that, you know, one person's an authority, you just have to do what they say, but it means that we're weeding together. So we need to... I had a really interesting interview with a guy who's just finished a PhD on how, how can, can we trust the Bible when so many, there are so many different views and so many different interpretations? So you should go and read it. It's really interesting. And his comment is, look, number one, the problem we've got is we don't trust authority. We live in an age where, you know, people say, don't trust in your authority, find out for yourself. Really? How do I find out for myself what's, what, what, what I do? I've got a little funny thing on my ear, you know, what am I going to do about that? I go to, I go to a doctor, I go to an expert. My wife's a little doctor, so that's great. I just have to turn it to, hey, Maggie. Anyway, so you want to get in your car, okay? Your car breaks down. Who, are you going to go phone up James and say, James, you're a vicar. Tell me what's wrong with my car. <laughs> Do you know about cars? No. You go to an expert. You go to a, a car mechanic, right? Because you trust the expert. Because they've had, they've had 30 years of experience. You don't have. If you're going to have 30 years of experience learning how to maintain your car, 30 years of experience how to do your electrics, your plumbing, your thing, you're never going to do any lifetime. We live in a world where we share expertise. So why don't we do that with scripture? Now, that's not just simply about doing what people say, but it's about, it's about working with one another and listening to one another and sifting those things. And he says, you know, we, we need to trust. Sometimes we do need to trust experts. But we need to test experts as well. Don't be just blindly for them. But the key thing he says is we can't read the scriptures well unless we read it with other people, unless we read it with people we disagree with. Because it's when we read and people say, no, I think it says this, that's when we have to say, why do I think it says what it says? Can I trust the text? And that, that sometimes is hard work, but actually it's really enriching. And I find I learn lots when somebody says to me, Ian, you're wrong, and then we have... <laughs> Funny little confession. This is quite amusing, actually. There's a chap called Richard Borkham. He's on, the, on your handout. He's on the bibliography. He really is the world expert on the book of Revelation and other things. He's a, he's, a, he's a great scholar. He's retired now. He's in Cambridge. He used to be at St. Andrews. Now, I wrote a little blog post about what I thought Mark chapter 13 says. And Richard disagreed with me. <laughs> so I thought, uh-uh. I have said to people, 
just here's a bit of professional advice if you're an academic scholar in the New Testament. Never disagree with Richard Borkham, okay? Because he knows 10 times more than you, and he'll always show you why you're wrong. Now, so when he said, I disagree with you, I thought, okay, that's going to be interesting. But actually, what we've done is we've had a really interesting interchange back and forwards. And he said, this is why I think you're wrong. And I said, well, Richard, yeah, but what you haven't spotted is this. And this is why I think you see. So in the end, I still think he's wrong. But it's it's just a really interesting exercise to engage in, in constructive discussion, which is the kind of thing our social media kind of tends to disallow. But we really need to do that, we really need to engage. And this is a good example of saying, okay, well, what does it really mean? So just going on to the next slide very quickly, and then we'll have a quick stretch, and we'll change the, change the focus. So just, you just need to show all of this stuff. So if you go on a trip to these different places, you find all sorts of interesting things. You go to Smyrna, and, and this is the words of him who has died and came to life in the city of Smyrna. Did die and came to life. It was destroyed and refounded. Quite a few of them were. To the one who conquers, I will give a crown of life. Smyrna was known as the crown of Asia. It had minted its own coins. It had a crown on it, a Stephanus, a wreath. Anybody here called Stephanie or Stephen? Stephen? Middle name, Stephen. Okay, so. Do you all know what your names mean, by the way? You do? Okay. I was in America at a conference and I went to a cheesecake factory in this. You know, in America, they do. They come and go, hi, my name's Stephanie, and I'm going to be your, your server tonight. What can I get you? And I said, Stephanie, that's an interesting name. Do you know what that means? She went, oh, no. I said, Stephanos is a victor's wreath. I said, Stephanie, you're a winner. She went, gee. She went off and got a French friend. She says, here's a guy here. I'll tell you what your name means. So I had this queue, this queue of servers. I had to interpret all their names. I said, you're through life and not know what your name is. Anyway, so uh, Stephanos, you're the crown of Asia. And there's no rebuke. Smyrna is one of the, the only the seven cities where there's still a Christian congregation there. It's interesting. Pergamum, I know where you are, where Satan's throne is. Well, it was probably, there's all sorts of theories about that. The center of the worship of Zeus in the area, so that's probably what that's about. To the victor, I'll give a white stone with a new name on it. Well, if you go to Pergamum, the local stone is black basalt. If you want to build a nice building, you have to import white limestone. So they know the difference between black and white there. In every, in all sorts of ways, it may be an allusion to voting. When you voted for in elections or for, for in competitions, you'd use a, a black stone to say no and a white pebble to say yes. Greek for pebble is psephos, and you use them to count. So the verb for counting or for voting is psephizo, which is the name of my blog. There you go. How about that. So uh, Sardis, wake up, strengthen that which remains. Sardis has got an extraordinary Acropolis. It's really worth going there. Get, just do a quick Google search on your on your pocket computers for Sardis Acropolis. It's extraordinary, really dramatic there. It's very difficult to climb up. And they were so confident, they said they don't need to post guards. They just fell asleep. And um, the, 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 the army that was besieging them noticed that somebody dropped some rubbish out, and they undid a little hatch door to go and retrieve it and pick it up. And they went, ha-ha. So they went in the hatch door and opened the gates and took the city. 300 years later, another army was besieging the city and somebody read this account and said oh I wonder if the door's still there and it was and they were still asleep <laughs> it's very vivid isn't it very vivid metaphor you think you're secure but actually you've left the back door open hmm interesting Laodicea you're rich you've prospered but in fact you're poor you're naked you're blind it was very wealthy they, an earthquake destroyed the city in the year 60 they refused imperial help they said we've got enough money they rebuilt the city themselves they made their money from black cloth from, and from uh, manufacture of ointment, of eye, eye ointment. You're poor, you're naked, you're blind. So do you see how vividly this is speaking to us? And, and you might want to do a similar kind of exercise. You might want to say here, what, you know, what, 
What's the context that you're in? How is that shaping who you are as a, as a congregation, as a, pe- as a people of God? Are you allowing yourselves to be too pressed into the mold of the culture around you? We lived in Poole in Dorset, as you said, and, and the church is really good at welcoming people. Well, the church warden ran a and b It's not surprising, really, is it? You knew how to welcome. That's good, isn't it? It's good. But it was sleepy Dorset. Oh, I've got to drink my coffee. Thank you. Yeah, all right. It's okay. I will do. Um, and, and, and we want to introduce a few changes, you know, and, and, and they sort of change. What do you want to change for? We've been like this for years, right? Sorry, that's a, I'm sitting to West Country accent, haven't I? So, so, again, you see, it's, we are shaped by our context and our environment. And we need to say, well, and interestingly, little different bits of the revelation of Jesus apply to different ones. And so you might want to reflect and say, well, which, which aspect of the gospel is particularly either pertinent or challenging here in your context? Here you have seven examples of the gospel applied differently in different contexts. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so uh, who likes numbers? There's a few people put their hands up, like maths. So I can, uh, okay, so how many verses are there in the book of Revelation? Nine thousand. <laughs> okay, cut, now there's um, there, there's lots of quick and easy ways to do maths and do estimates and stuff. There's YouTube channels all about it. Any of you mathematicians watch the sort of maths YouTube channels? Some really good stuff. Or Veritasium. Anybody watch Veritasium? Oh, okay. You haven't got the internet here, haven't you? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's this thing where you can connect with. Uh, no, okay. Um, uh, Everyday Math, every, Everyday Smarter Every Day, that's a great channel. Christian guy does that. Smarter Every Day, yeah, he's really good. Hi, Destin here. We're getting smarter every day. Really good. <laughs> On cognitive bias and cognitive um, confirmation, by the way, he's got a great video. Look at, look, go and look it up and look up Smarter Every Day and look up Bicycle. He's got a really interesting thing about how your brain is wired and rewired and how you learn. When you learn new stuff, you need to have eaten a good breakfast because your neurons are actually rewiring as you listen to new information. You see the world in a different way. He's got a great example of that, trying to cycle a, 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 do a bicycle that turns the opposite way to the way you steer it. Really interesting stuff. Okay, um, how, many, how, many, how are you going to work out how many verses there are in the book of Revelation? You could count them. Yeah, you could, but there's a quicker way. Yeah, count the chapters. So how, how many chapters are there? 22. Roughly how many verses in each chapter? What do you think? Roughly? 20. What's 20 times 22? 400. <laughs> you might know about genres, but where's your basic maths? Come on. <laughs> okay. So there's, there's actually 405, I think. Someone's going to be checking this up for me. There's another way you can do it. You can just go to the end of each chapter and find out what the last verse number is because that tells you how many verses there are, right? So you just add up the, all right? Or you can go to, oh, you need to hide that. Quickly, just put B for blank. No, hide that, just B. Press B, blank. Okay, fine, that's good. I just realized I've got a shadow on there which gives you the answers, so it's no good. Okay, so. Uh, okay, so it's 405 verses. Now, how many times do you think Revelation refers to the Old, or alludes to the Old Testament. How often do you think it uses Old Testament ideas and language? 405 verses. Who thinks about 100 times? Yay, thank you. Who thinks about 200 times? Yeah, okay. Either some of you are very skeptical, you're hedging your bets. So who thinks about 300 times? Okay. Who thinks about f- 400 times? 
Who thinks more than 400 times? You know, no, you're just, you're just not voting, are you? Okay, I see. You're still thinking about what your friend had for breakfast and why you didn't have it. Okay. Okay, the answer is... 676. Now, I know that because I spent one whole week of my life <laughs> counting them. So every time I teach on the book of Revelation, I mention that because that is a week of my life I'm not going to get back. All right? So <laughs> if you're really interested, I have got a chart mapping in the cross the chapters of Revelation where the different books of the Bible are referred to, alluded to. All right? Now, so, okay. So, so why do we find Revelation challenging? Number one, because we don't think it's in the Bible. Number two, because we never read it in our church. Number three, because we don't do genre recognition. Number four, we, we haven't been on holiday to Turkey. Number five, we don't know our Old Testament very well. Can anybody here please recite to me three chapters of Deuteronomy in Hebrew? Anybody? Can you? Okay, if you're an Orthodox Jew, you could, because that's what you have to do for your bar mitzvah. Right? Has anyone here ever learnt a chapter of the New Testament by heart? Okay, good. That's good. Was it difficult? Not that hard. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and his angels with him, he'll take his seat on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the nations as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And he'll turn to those on his right and say, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, receive the inheritance prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was uh, naked, and you clothed me. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And they will say to him, They'll turn to the master and say, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you a drink? When did we ever see you naked and clothe you and a stranger and welcome you? When did we ever see you sick and in prison and care for you? And he'll say to them, I tell you the truth, whenever you did this for the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. And then he'll turn to those on his left and he'll say to them, away with you into the outer darkness, where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. For I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I, I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was a, 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 visit, a stranger and you did not welcome me. I was sick and in prison and you did not care for me. And the words on the left will say to him, Master, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or naked or, or stranger or sick and in prison? We did not care for you. And he'll say to them, I tell you the truth, as long as you did not do this for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did not do it for me. Now, I learned that 25 years ago. And I think if you're following it in Matthew 25, it was almost word perfect, wasn't it? Because Jesus taught in a way that you could remember. The New Testament writers write in a way. Because you see, the lector is going to read and the thesis is going to listen. They're not going to go away with their Bibles and check it out afterwards. They're going to have to listen really carefully and remember it. Blessed are those who hear and who keep the words of this prophecy. And I just noticed when I learned that, that Jesus had those six things structured in three pairs, you see. So it's actually, Jesus teaches so that we remember stuff. So, so we should, anyway, so we don't know our Old Testament. So, okay, but which, so 676, now which books of the Old Testament do you think that John uses most? Daniel, thank you. Because that's apocalyptic. Isaiah, that's interesting. Zechariah. Ezekiel, because that's all weird stuff too, isn't it? Yeah, okay. 
Okay, so let's, uh, let's put the slide now so we can see the answer is, so there's 405 verses, there's 676 allusions to the Old Testament. Number one, Isaiah, it's like my dog, he walks like this, he's got one Isaiah than the other. No, he hasn't, it's an old one, oh dear. The old ones are the best, aren't they? Psalms, Psalms, 1900 references to the Psalms. Then Ezekiel, then Daniel. Exodus, ooh. Now, Revelation is within the covers of our Bible. It tells the, shares the same story. Look, he's drawing all the, what are these texts about? They are, what's Isaiah about? Isaiah is about crisis and the promise of hope, isn't it? Just a quick summary, say you're reading the chapter. But just, by the way, how many chapters are there in Isaiah? 66, yeah. Hmm. How many books are there in the Bible? 66, huh. Isaiah's thought of in two halves, really. You know, there's all the historical stuff with some prophecy in the first half, and then there's all the stuff about, you know, good news to Jerusalem, blah, 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 suffering servants, all that kind of thing. How many chapters are there in the first half of Isaiah? 39. How many books are there in the Old Testament? 39. Hmm. How many chapters are there in the second half of Isaiah? That's where you've got to do your maths. What is 66 minus 39 is 27. What's my next question going to be? 27, isn't that interesting? Crisis and promise and the fulfillment of hope. Crisis and promise, Old Testament. Fulfillment of hope in the new. Huh. Isn't that interesting? Clever old Stephen Langton... Archbishop of Canterbury in the 13th century who wrote the Magna Carta and put our chapter numbers into the Bible. He was trying to tell us something about Isaiah. Hmm, quite important, Isaiah. Psalms, what's the, what are the Psalms about? How can we worship God aright in the face of conflict, sometimes in a strange land in exile? Maybe that's what Revelation is about. Promise and hope, maybe that's what Revelation is about. Ezekiel, what's Ezekiel about? The nation's been destroyed, they're in exile, they're in a foreign land. Has God deserted them or does his hope go with them into this strange territory in which they now live as they wait for his deliverance? Maybe that's what the book of Revelation is about. What's Daniel about? Same thing, isn't it? Daniel's in exile. How can Daniel keep faith? How can he be sustained by visions of hope and the kingdom as he lives faithfully in a foreign land? Maybe that's what Revelation is about. What is Exodus about? God has delivered his people from slavery and is leading them on a journey through the desert until they have not yet entered the promised land. Maybe that's what the book of Revelation is about. And if we're facing those kinds of challenges and we feel as, a, as the people of God, we're living in a foreign land and we're, we're facing opposition and we're looking forward to a kingdom that is to come but we're not there yet, we need to read the book of Revelation, because it's giving us a worked example using scripture of how those in the first century can do that. And although we're in different chronological time, we're in the same theological time, which we're going to explore tomorrow morning. So here's the thing. If Revelation is saturated with the Old Testament, turn to Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to get you to do an exercise so I can finish my coffee. I mean, no, because I'm going to do... Okay. Now, Revelation chapter 4, you know about this, don't you? Because the book of Revelation has influenced Christian imagery and 
hymnody more than any other book of the Bible. I reckon my finger in the air is about 50% of all Christian images and hymnody and language comes from the book of Revelation. I'm just having a look around here where I can see any or not. <laughs> Who's that? Is that? Who's that supposed to be? Is that Michael? No. Michael, Revelation chapter 12. Ta-da! I proved my... There you go. How about that? Point proved. All right? This also comes in Daniel, but that's from Revelation. Okay. Um, so read Revelation chapter 4. You'll know it's all about myriads of angels worshipping. So we have that lovely vision from the 10-year-old. Mentioned the angels, all right? No wings, by the way, in the Bible, but never mind. Don't worry about that. Um, so... Just have a read through. Now, if you're an introvert, you want to do it on your own, that's fine. Or you can turn to your neighbor and do it, have a discussion about it, just for three or four minutes. Just cast your eye through Revelation chapter 4 and see if you can spot. You know, there's like what, at least one or two references to the Old Testament in every verse on average, isn't there? So you should be able to find some. So see what images or ideas in Revelation 4 you can recognize from the Old Testament. But you'll also find lots of ideas and images which I suspect you won't recognize from the Old Testament. Okay? So just see for a few minutes how many things you can pick out. So you probably should end up with like two columns of things. Ideas from the Old Testament, ideas that you can't think of in the Old Testament. Is that okay? Does that make sense? Are you happy? Am I, am I working you too hard? I'll tell you the answers in a minute, all right? Off you go. Okay, you might not have got all the answers, but other people have spotted stuff, so let's have a quick share. I'm not allowed to use the word brainstorm these days, are we? No, quick share. So, so for, um, now you might have to run very, very fast, because I'm going to repeat what people say. So, any images or ideas you found which you think came from the Old Testament? Quick shout them out. Yes? The throne. Throne, throne of God. Okay, throne of God. Yeah, thank you. All over, actually, isn't there? Because God is king. King sits on thrones, yeah. Any other Old Testament images? Four living creatures, where do they come from? Ezekiel from Ezekiel chapter 1, four living creatures, yeah, with eyes and wings and things, and yeah, yeah thank you, and wheels, yes? Uh, flashes, of, uh, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peelings of thunder. Where does that come from? Yeah, it has somewhere else, even more striking. Sorry, it's too, yeah, you can't run fast enough, can you? Rumblings and peelings of thunder, yes? From Exodus, from Sinai, yeah, God comes down on Mount Sinai and there's rumblings and peelings of thunder and flashes of lightning and everything. He says, shows God's presence. All right, okay, thank you. Anything else from the Old Testament? Yes. Holy, holy, holy. From Isaiah chapter 6. He was high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Yeah, any other th- anything else from the Old Testament? Yay. Yes. Jasper and Carnelian. Are you a geologist? No. Oh, okay. Where do they come from? He was thinking about the ephod. <laughs> I mean, you know, when, when that isn't that true of us all, you know, aren't we? <laughs> Having breakfast. Do you know what, darling? I was just thinking about the ephod, you know? There's a theologian in the making, though. What's, what's the ephod? It's the thing on the, high, the breastplate of the high priest who has 12 different jewels which represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Hmm, Revelation 21, the city. Okay, great, yeah, jewels, right. Also in the creation account in Genesis 2, yeah, as well. So creation, priesthood, people of God, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, any, any other Old Testament images? A rainbow. A rainbow from Noah, which is in Genesis chapter 9. Thank you. Testing your Old Testament knowledge here, aren't I? Okay, yeah. 
Curious, this rainbow though, this rainbow is like an emerald. What? 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 Sorry, what colour are rainbows? Red and yellow and... Okay, Richard of York, get battle in vain. What colours are emeralds? Green. Okay, so, how can a rainbow be like an emerald? Hmm, tricky, isn't it? Tricky, isn't it? Okay, but, okay, anything else from the Old Testament? Yes? A heavenly portal. Hmm. He had a ladder. Yeah. Don't, don't see doors, really, do we? Oh, okay. Anything else? Okay, what about other things that you can't see in the Old Testament? What other things are there? Say again? 24 thrones, yeah. Who's sitting on the thrones? Elders. Does that not strike you as odd? Right? In the Old Testament, who goes into the holy presence of God and worships? Priests and high priests. How many priests are mentioned in the book of Revelation? Zero. Hang on a minute, John. There are 676 allusions to the Old Testament, and you managed, and it's all about worship, and you managed to never mention the word priest. What is going on? Actually, he does mention the word priest. He doesn't identify. Well, okay. Well, I'll, I'll come back to that. We'll come back to that in a minute. All right. Doesn't that strike you as odd? Jewish people reading this book, as Jews and Gentiles together as Christians, as priests are not mentioned. That really, really, really matters. Okay. Odd. Okay. So twenty-four elders, right? Twenty-four of them, and they're elders. And what do they do? Bow down. That's okay. And what are they? What in them? What do they do? Crowns. Where do they come from? Gold crowns. What? What's that about? This is a text saturated in the Old Testament, and we've got these weird ideas in it. What do they wear? White. What do the high priests wear? Well, the high priest wears linen on day, but actually linen is what Jesus is wearing in chapter 1, so he's kind of like the priestly figure. But they wear purple and gold and all sorts of colors, and you know, tabernacles, all lots of colors. So white is not the biblical color for worship, ironically. Anything else? Okay, so what we've got, we've got here, uh, let's quickly put the slide up. Um, oh, no, to jump, next one, jump past that, sorry. <sighs> I haven't got time for that. Okay, there we go. We've got a throne, we've got rainbows, we've got four living creatures, we've got jewels, we've got lightning and thunder, and we've got, on, and we've got, on the other hand, we've got throne rooms, we've got 24 elders wearing white, dressed in white and golden crowns and casting them down and singing these repetitive choruses. Worthy, worthy, worthy are you, Lord. Okay, they're doing this forever, so you can imagine the angel going, right, for the 5,372nd time, but this time with real feeling. <laughs> okay. Maybe it feels like that on a Sunday sometimes. I don't know. Now, I've got an article I'd like to write, and here's the thing. Are we going to be singing in the new creation? Everyone says that worship is the preparation for heaven, don't they? In Revelation chapter 21, does anybody sing? No. Has it ever struck you? Hasn't that struck you as odd? When the end comes, Jesus returns, the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to earth, that's when the singing stops. Ooh. Have you, not, have you noticed that? There's no singing in Revelation 21, 22. Why? Well, I've got three theories. Number one, we sing because we long for God. We sing because we declare to the world. And we sing because we hope for the future. 
that all the hymns in Revelation are looking to what God will do. When God comes to us, he's closer than, he's so close he can wipe every tear from our eyes. So we don't, when someone's close to you, you don't need to shout, you, don't, you can whisper, right? When God is here now, he's present in the world. We don't need to tell everybody, they can all see. And we don't need to hope for the future because the future is now realized. So we sing because it is not yet. And when he comes, we don't need to sing. We'll just enjoy. So those of you who don't like singing, praise the Lord, eh? <laughs> Look, I, I'm sure God won't forbid it. So if you do like singing, I'm sure you'll be able to carry on. But you won't need to. That's the thing, all right? So singing does things for us that we won't need in the, in the age to come. Isn't that exciting? Okay, so there we go. There's a little article coming on that. Um, I've never heard anybody, have you heard anybody say that? Notice that we don't sing? No, okay, there we go. Um, uh, okay, so all that stuff on the left comes from the Bible, from the Old Testament. Where's the stuff on the right come from? Well, it's in Revelation, yeah, sure. But where does John get it from? If you were sitting in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, uh, Thyatira, you, you, you'd know, you'd recognize that straight away because it's part of your culture, because you live in the Roman Empire. You are, you know that when the emperor comes to visit, you are to bow down. We know document from documentary evidence when Alexander traveled around his empire, the elders of cities came out dressed in white and they had gold crowns and they cast them down. Why? Because the elders were saying, we're under your authority, Alexander, Roman emperor, Tiberius Augustus or Domitian, whoever you are, we rulers of the city and the empire, we rule with your authority in your place. That's how the Romans worked it. When you come, we therefore give up our authority to you and we show to those unruly citizens who wouldn't listen to us that we were exercising your authority now they're going to have to face up to you O emperor O king because you're now here so they will realize because all authority the only authority we have is the authority you've given to us and we know we've got records of Augustus, people saying, oh, Augustus, mighty Augustus, worthy are you of praise because you bring peace and prosperity. Repeat 27 times. And they did. And the, the emperors were accompanied by people called lictors. And the lictors carried bundles of sticks called fasces. And that's where um, Mussolini got the word fascist from because individual rods are weak on their own, but they're strong when they're together. So his followers were called the fascists. So the fasces, these are the rods that Paul was beaten with in 2 Corinthians. I've been beaten with rods, with the fasces, with the bundles. So, so, so how important you were in the empire determined how many lictors you had carrying fasces to show your authority. And Domitian changed the number for the emperor from 12 to 24. So here is a picture of God as emperor. So the question is, what signs... So what John is doing is he's taking all those signs of human authority and saying they don't belong to the emperor, they belong to God. What does Jesus say to Pontius Pilate? Pilate says, don't you know I have authority to give your, take your life? And Jesus says, you only have authority because it's been given to you from on high. So a couple of years ago, we did this in New Wine and we had 400 people in a tent and I said, everybody stand, I'm not going to make you do it. Well, I could do. Everybody stand up and raise your right hand. Raise your left hand. Why am I doing this? Not because you're wacky charismatics. It's because in our culture, this is how we show people that we honor them and they have authority. If you don't believe me, go to a football match. People do it all the time. And then we do that and then we say to God, everybody in our lives, who has authority over you? Who has power over you? 
your employer, your friends, your peer group, your person who pays your pension, <laughs> your political leaders, your cultural leaders, those who run business, those who are celebrities, those who run the media. And we say, Revelation 4 tells us to say to them, you only have authority because, that, because it's been given to you by God and that authority belongs to God and one day you'll give an account for it. That's what praising God means. When we say God is on the throne, we say Jesus is Lord, it means he is Lord over all those other lords and that's what Revelation teaches us to do. Okay, maybe I should have got you to stand up. <laughs> Okay, so there you go, that's Revelation 4 done for you. But you see, isn't it extraordinary? Now, uh, one of the things I want to convince you is that, even if you didn't think the book of Revelation was part of the God-breathed scriptures, that you would, you would recognize it's the most extraordinary piece of literature that anyone has ever written in the world because it's incredibly structured. It has this variety of kinds of literature. It's embedded in its context and uses that really cleverly. It's got all these allusions to the Old Testament, but it also incorporates features of its own culture and blends them together into a kind of a unified thing. It's extraordinary. So we're going to look at some other questions now, some bits of structure. Because as a narrative, somebody talked earlier, when we talk about kinds of writing and narrative, it's, it's incredibly, incredibly well structured. And we're going to look at a couple of examples. So we're going to look at narrative structure in chapter 7 and 12. Then we're going to work out the number of the beast. I should feel I ought to have a mirror and go, look, the beast. <laughs> That's a great film, wasn't it? Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, the cartoon was great. I thought the remake was, the live action remake was even, was even better, actually. So, okay, where have we got to? Now, uh, as you may all have noticed, we've actually been working through your handout. So we're at the bottom of page, oh, bottom of page two. Oh, dear. Okay, we're going to keep moving. I'm going to keep moving through chapters uh, seven and 12 because we want to get on to the number of the beast. Oh, that's chapter, that's verse five. That's right, that's right. Okay, so. Uh, so let's look at Revelation chapter 7. Now, again, I just want you to just spend a minute. Now, don't turn to your neighbor this time, just so this is a bit of an introvert moment here. So just do what you've done before. Look at chapter 7. Just cast your eye. If you're slightly short-sighted, that's even better. Just hold it away from you or sort of squint a bit. And just notice that I've, I've mentioned to you that all the white space is put in by the editors and the printers to help you, by the translators to help you. So just have a little look. Chapter 7. Just have a, just look at it on... Again, you, see, you can do this much more easily on print rather than a scroll. Look at the shape of it. I've had some subheadings added in here as well, which sometimes are helpful. Hmm. Just a tip on reading. If you want to read a book quickly, one of the things you can do is just look at the paragraphs and read the first and last sentence of each paragraph. Have you ever done that? Because usually when people write something, they introduce something in a paragraph, they have a discussion, then they conclude it. So you can actually get the sense of the paragraph just reading the beginning. Isn't it interesting? If you notice, look at the beginning of the paragraphs here. After this I saw... Verse 4, after this I heard. After this I looked, verse 9. Then one of the elders addressed me. Hey, verse 3, another angel. Now the first angel, second angel. It is interesting, isn't it, that, that the person doing the editing here is 
is actually following John's language. So it's another thing we ought to be doing, is paying attention to John's language. John uses his words very, very precisely. We're in a, we're in a different culture here. If this feels complicated, um, here's a question. How difficult is it to go for, a, what's the hills here, the South Downs, are they? How difficult is it to, to go for a walk in the South Downs? It's easy. It's not easy if you live in Nottingham. Because I've got to get in my car, I've got to check my tyres, had the car serviced, got to fill up with petrol, I've got to drive, I've got to drive through the, the dark, I've got to stop at a service station, pick some food up, find my way using Google Sat and It's actually quite complicated. It's fine once I'm here, <laughs> but it's a complicated journey to get here. Okay, here's the thing. How is it, how difficult is it to speak Hebrew? I know three-year-olds who are fluent. It's easy. They live in Israel. <laughs> it's easy once you're there. So one of the problems we have with the book of Revelation is that people think that they, they go on no journey at all to read the text, and they end up with this incredibly complex scenario with this and that and the other and timetables and so on because they're trying to take a simple approach to the text, and they end up with a very complex picture. Whereas what I'm trying to be doing with you this morning is to go on a complicated journey getting in your car, putting on the petrol, you're going on a cross-cultural journey. Whenever we open the pages of the Bible, we're going on a cross-cultural journey. So we have to go into their world. We have to say, this is a world where they don't have the internet, they don't have calculators, they don't think of numbers in the abstract, they're in the concrete, where they're immersed in a world of Roman imperial worship, they live in a different part of the world, it's full of earthquakes. Turkey is notorious for earthquakes. Most of those cities were destroyed one time or another by an earthquake. They heard the story about Mount Vesuvius, a fiery mountain cast into the sea, which it was, because it's right, you know, um, Pompeii is right by, by the ocean, the Bay of Naples. So, you see, we're going, on a, we're going on a complex journey into another culture. Whenever you go abroad to a culture where you don't know and you don't speak the language, the journey is difficult. But once you're there, and you look around, it's really straightforward. Once, we, once we're in this world and we look around, we see, we see a Jesus we recognize. He's a Jesus who's, who's, by his blood we've been redeemed and who's made us into a kingdom of priests. Ah, priests. All right? That's in verse six, 5, isn't it? Using Ezekiel 9, Exodus 19, verse 6. God's desire for his people from the beginning that they would be a kingdom of priests. They only had a tribe of priests after they'd sinned at uh, Sinai when they'd, with the golden calf. They, God's original intention was they'd be a kingdom of priests, a whole people of priests. That's what, we, that's what 1 Peter says the same. You'd be made a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. That's what we are. Revelation says the same. Once we've gone on that complex cross-cultural journey, to actually read it in its, in its own terms. So after this, I saw. So, but but in that one of the things. Sorry, one of the reasons. That, one of the things about that context is that writing is expensive and difficult. So you don't write much. The New Testament is very short. Has it ever struck you how odd that is? Very few words. That means the writers are choosing their words very carefully. So we need to slow down, and read. That's a good reason to learn New Testament Greek. They say it just can't be that hard. Can I know three-year-olds who speak Greek as well? But it slows you down. It makes you read the text carefully, and that's what we need to do. Okay, so what do we see here? Well, I think we see an introductory section, verses 1 to 3. And then my editor has got a new paragraph of verse 4. And, and but, you know, he says, and I heard. So it is. And then he's got this list of all the 
144,000 sealed out of every tribe from the people of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 sealed. From the tribe of Reuben. Oh, okay, we can join in with this. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 sealed. My, got no, my good news Bible <laughs> got fed up and it just had verses 5 to 8. Oh, 12,000 from every tribe. It couldn't be bothered listening out. It was too complicated, all right? But what have, we, what have we just done? Yeah, and we've mentioned, named them. Yeah, so the names are important. By the way, do you notice anything about that list of the names of the 12 tribes? Doesn't. Did you notice it doesn't match any of the 14 different lists of tribes in the Old Testament? I'm sure you noticed that. Richard, you notice that? Yeah? Okay, so some work to do there. Isn't that interesting? He's chosen those names really carefully. Do you notice who's missing? Dan. Dan, Dan, the naughty man. Why? Dan was in the north. Dan, instead of going down to the temple of Jerusalem, set up his own high places and worshipped other gods. So this is about the people of God in purity of worship. Hmm. And do you know something else odd about it? Yep. So we've, again, we've got a reorganization. Because, because Dan's missing, we've had, to, we've had to include Joseph and, oh, I've forgotten the oddities, Joseph and Manasseh. And Ephraim, yeah. And notice who's at the beginning and the end, and they're emphasized because both of them are sealed. Judah and Benjamin. What's significant about Judah and Benjamin? This is, this is the southern kingdom, yeah, but this is where Messiah is going to come from, isn't it? Jesus is a, was born of the tribe of Benjamin. So here you've got a messianic people of God, organized, pure in worship, and what have we just done? We just listed the names and we, from each of the tribes, we, we counted them, right? What are you doing when you count people? We're taking a census. Okay, so what do you take, why do you take a census? <coughs> Tax or... Why is the book of Numbers called the book of Numbers? Because there's a lot of numbers in it. Because Moses counts the people. Why does he count the people? Because they've been set free from slavery in Egypt. They're on the journey to the promised land. And what are they going to meet on the way? Trouble. <laughs> yeah. So he counts them so he knows his fighting strength. If you live in Israel today, the primary reason for the census is because every citizen between the ages of 18 and 54 is in the army. So here you have a picture of the messianic people of God purified in worship and ready as an army to engage in spiritual warfare. And this is the only picture of corporate warfare, spiritual warfare in the New Testament. Before you say Ephesians 6, that's just an individual. Okay. Okay, it's a kind of a corporate individual anyway, the armor of God, all right? Is that interesting? What's going on there? Now, (laughs) 
I'm reading in the light of John's reuse of the Old Testament. Now, what's really interesting, we could spend more time on this, and there's a whole, whole load of stuff going on. The, at the beginning, after this, I saw the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow. Another angel ascending from the rising of the sun in the east, having the seal of the living God. Now, does that remind you of anything? The people under trouble, there's judgment coming. Angels come to seal to save those who will be kept safe in the, in the coming judgment. Does that remind you of anything? Think about those 676 illusions. Exodus could be. Yeah, that's Passover. Yeah, that's true. I think there are some stronger illusions there. There's actually an episode in the Old Testament where Jerusalem's coming under judgment, the enemy's at the gates, and an angel is sent through in order to seal and protect the faithful remnant, which is in, I know you were thinking of it immediately, just like you're thinking of the ephod, Ezekiel chapter 9. So if you, if you don't, we won't do it now, we haven't got time, but just go after and have a look. You can, in the Bible, you can put your fingers, read Ezekiel 9, read Revelation 7, and you'll see that John is taking this material and reworking it. So it's not now Jerusalem under siege, under judgment. It's the world under judgment. It's no longer a faithful remnant. It's the followers of the Lamb who are being sealed with the seal of the living God. And again, you can trace the seal of the living God through the narrative, and you can trace the mark of the beast, and you'll find that if you have the seal of the living God, you don't have the mark of the beast. If you have the mark of the beast, you don't have the seal of the living God, and judgment comes on the basis of separating those two groups. So this is a whole narrative thread that John is introducing here. So it's a wonderful text. It's really, just follow these themes through. It's fantastic. It's incredibly carefully composed. So... So here we are, here we have the world under judgment. Why does he talk about four winds? He's just talked about the four horsemen because that's an idea from Zechariah chapter four where the four horses of different colors are the winds of heaven. That's what Zechariah says. So that's the connection between chapter six and chapter seven. And people often say, oh, well, in the end times, brackets future, there will be the four horsemen who stand for conquest, war, slaughter, famine, death. To which I respond, you think that's future? Oh, can I buy you a daily newspaper, please? Yeah. People say, oh, well, it's going to be even worse in the future. I said, really? Worse in the future? Do you not know that in the Black Death, a third of Europe's, Europe's population died? Do you not know that in the Thirty Years' War in Germany, in some parts, 70% of the population was slaughtered? Do you not know that when um, Genghis Khan came from the east and slaughtered all the Europeans. You can measure in ice cores the increase in, the decrease, the increase, decrease, the increase in oxygen because all the farmland went back to forest. You can measure it. The four horsemen have been galloping far and wide since John wrote the book of Revelation. And the moment you read chapter six, all John's readers would go, that's the world we live in. It's the world we live in. The, 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 the fall of Rome was probably down to one of the Justinian plague, final form of the Justinian plague, where something like between a third and a half of the Roman Empire died in the plague. Just phenomenal. If you're in a city particularly, plague just, just, just went like wildfire through the population. By the way, that's how the church grew. Because Christians stayed and nursed the sick people in the plagues. Pagans ran away so they didn't catch it. As a result more pagans died with the plague than Christians did. And so the church grew as a proportion of the population. Kind of an interesting strategy for church growth, isn't it? <laughs> the other thing they did is have more babies too, which is another strategy for church growth, but that's a bit more sort of generational. Okay. So just a, just a thought. I don't know if we can, so I've completely lost here. Just on the slides. Um, <laughs> can you find the slide, Revelation 7? Just to, just to reflect, you can think about this. What's pastorally helpful? Oh, yeah, next one after that. Can you? There we go, great. 
What's partially helpful about the idea of seeing God's people as an army getting ready for war? What situations might it be helpful? But it's also perhaps not the only picture we should think of. I think actually what Revelation as a whole does, if we can go on to the next slide, it gives us three pictures through this chapter. And I've spent a whole week teaching on this, so we could spend a lot of time on it. But I think there are three pictures. The first is we have here an army marching. But if you read through Revelation, John says, I heard something and I turned and I saw. I heard and I saw. I saw and I heard. He hears, chapter 1, a voice like a trumpet. He turns to see the voice. How do you see a voice? That's weird, isn't it? You can only see a voice if the person speaking is the word of God. Oh. And you can eat a word as well. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is my body. It's kind of weird, isn't it? If you have synesthesia, you'll be, it's a delight, you know, where you mix up your senses. But anyway, so he sees, so he hears the number being counted out and he turns to see this numbered group of the tribes of Israel turn out to be, as he turns to see it, Revelation 7 verse 9, and I saw a people who could not be counted from every tribe, language, people and nation. In the first covenant, God saved his people out of every nation in the new covenant in Jesus, God saves his people out of every nation. Do you see the difference? If you're listening to this on a recording, that will make no sense to you, whatever, because you need to see my gesture. Do you see the difference? Israel was saved out of every nation. The new Israel in Jesus is saved out of every nation. Unless you are ethnic Jewish and live in Israel, you are a testimony to Revelation 7 verse 9 has been fulfilled. We are f saved from every tribe, language, people, and nation. But we're not saved to be corralled together and cut off. We're saved to live, to be salt and light in every tribe, language, people, and nation. And that is what God always intended. That's why in Acts chapter 15, we have the mission to the Gentiles as affirmed. Because they interpret the prophecy of Isaiah that all the nations would come to Mount Zion has been fulfilled in the Gentile mission in Jesus. We'll come to it tomorrow, but let me say provocatively, that's why the New Testament has no expectation that ethnic Jews will return to the land in the end times. We already have. We are the Israel of God. We are in the place of blessing and obligation, which is now in the temple Jesus. Can you say that again? Yeah. The New, Te the New Testament has no expectation anywhere that ethnic Jews will return to the land of Israel because the return to the land, the saving out of every nation, has been accomplished in the mission, the Gentile mission. We are now in the temple. You are in the temple. You are in the temple. Why? Because we are incorporate in Jesus, who is the temple presence of God. And we'll talk about that more tomorrow. That's a little trailer for tomorrow, isn't it? We haven't worked out the number of the beast yet. Okay, so... So we're the disciplined army of God. Next slide. We are also, but we also those who are comforted. Who, the angel says to John, who are these who are worshipping? John says, I don't know, you know. He says, these are the ones who've come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. That's you and me. Again, it's another picture of us. Why? Because if you are in Jesus... You are in the kingdom 
but you are also in the world. What did Jesus say in John 16? In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Well, again, we'll explore this more in detail tomorrow. What does John say? 1 verse 9, the letter bit. I, John, am your brother in tribulation. So tribulation isn't some end times thing in the future. Well, if it is, it's already happening. It was happening to John. He was in tribulation, which is his in Jesus. I, John, am your brother in tribulation and in kingdom. So I'm in trouble with the world, but I'm in the kingdom of God. I'm incorporating Jesus. I'm in that temple presence of God. How do you live with both those two things? with patient endurance because we've we've tasted a foretaste of the kingdom but we still live in the world where we get into trouble we experience tribulation and to hold those two together you need to live with patient endurance because what do we pray daily may your kingdom come we're we're we're, we're stretched in the tension between what it, what we know now and what we know what will yet be what was paul's Effective preaching strategy on his first missionary journey. Acts 14.22. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Have you tried that as a missionary strategy? You should put a billboard out here. Come and hear James preach, and then you'll know what suffering is like. It, it works for the army, doesn't it? Have you ever noticed those things when recruiting for the army? They get pictures of young men being shoved in bogs and shouted at by sergeants. And thrown, you know, as well say, born in Bradford, made in the army. But it works, doesn't it? Maybe we should try that. If you're having a hard time, at least have a hard time for something that's worth suffering for, you know? So we, we suffer, but we also praise. Third picture. Are people praising? And we praise not so much. Yeah, we praise for what God has done. We praise for what God is doing. If we just do that, it's triumphalism. We praise for what God will do because we've experienced something wonderful, but it's just a foretaste of what is to come. David Watson's great strapline, particularly as he was dying from cancer, the best is yet to be. That's what we look to. Our praise must always be looking to the future because it is wonderful that God heals, as, you, as many of you know. It's wonderful that God answers prayer, but we also live with sickness and we don't yet see the full answers to the prayers that we long for. We don't yet see the kingdom come. We don't yet see God's name honored. We don't yet see his will done. So we're constantly looking to the future and that's what praise equips us for. That's Revelation chapter 7. Can you see why Revelation is the most Christian book in the New Testament? It's got such a depth and richness of theology. Honestly, we could spend half a day just looking at Revelation chapter 1 and all those different bits of Jesus and stuff like that. So that's why you need to buy my commentary. I shall be at the door uh, when we finish at 1 o'clock, so you can, okay. Um, let's do one thing really briefly before we work out the number of the beast. You're looking forward to that still, aren't you? <laughs> the number of the beast? All right. Let's just do the same with, now what have we done? We've looked at the Old Testament, we've looked at structure, we've looked at culture, we've looked at context, we've looked at the way John incredibly, beautifully, artfully brings these things together. And every commentator, if you ever pick up a book about Revelation, they'll always tell you that Revelation 12 is the center of the book. What's really interesting, if you turn to Revelation 12, there's a change, there's a radical change. 
Because you see, you see in seven, he says, and I saw, and I heard, and I saw, and I saw. All through the book, and I saw, and I heard. Chapter 11, then I was given, then, I, then they were, then they finished, and so on. Chapter 12, a great portent or sign appeared in heaven. Ah, oh. you see, it's a completely different kind of language here. Something different's going on. Every commentator noticed this. So, so between 11 verse 19, we've got more lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder there. And 12.1, there's, there's a clear change of language. Now again, just sort of go blurry, take your glasses off, just look, squint, look at the thing. You can see, can you see that Revelation 12 has actually quite a distinct shape to it? Can you see that? I'm blinking. So you can see, at least your editor thinks so. You see, you've got, ver what have you got? Verses 1 to 6, that seems to be one section. Then... I've got a heading in my Bible and a break before verse 7. 7 to 9. Then my editor thinks something else is going on. Verse 10. Do you see? Verse 10 in my version is just laid out poetically. I think it probably is in most versions, actually. It's just kind of a hymn here. Have you got that? Is, is your print Bible supposed to do that? I don't know what happens if you're looking at the electronic scroll, does it? I don't know if it does that layout or not. If you're looking on the phone. And then we've got this last section says so we've kind of got one two three sort of four different sections so it's got a shape to it do you see that i don't know if you're skimming through if you notice something odd about the shape as well so just have a look at some um, where does the first section end the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared for her by god so she can be there nourished for 1260 days and then when we jump on to the fourth section, when the dragon saw had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd been given birth to a male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle. She could fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she was nourished for time, times, and half a time. Okay, so we need that all you put your hands up, who are the mathematicians, okay? So time, times, and half a time. Well, in, in Hebrew, he's not writing Hebrew, he's not in Greek, but, but a but you get a dual, so you get a plural, which means two things. So time times and half a time is one plus two plus a half, which equals three and a half. Okay, so okay, so three and a half. If we have if we have three and a half years, if we've got twelve months in a year, how many months is that? Ah, oh, forty-two. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because in chapter eleven, we've got the two witnesses. Well, verse 11, verse 2, the holy city was trampled for 42 months. Hmm. It's interesting, same time period. Okay, so now religious calendars like to be organized. So religious calendars have months of 30 days. We've got, we vary with 30, 31, or 28. The religious Jewish calendar had 30 days, so they had to add in extra months every now and then. So uh, 42 months, how many days is that? Well, 42, so 4 times 30 is, is 1,200, isn't it? And then the 2 is 60, so it's 1,260. Oh, okay, that's interesting, isn't it? Do you see? So the 1,260 days the woman is in the desert is the same as the time, times, and half a time the woman is in the desert, which is the same as the 42 months, the same time period. Do you see that? Just doing a bit of basic maths, is that right? Is that interesting? Okay, hmm. 
So what's going on here? What's the shake? Well, let's, let's have a see. So we've got, first of all, we've got verses 1 to 6. We've got a story about a woman and a dragon and a child who's going to rule the nations with an iron rod. Do you recognize those figures from anywhere? Dragon? Serpent? Ring any bells? Yeah, because the middle section explains it to us. He's the Satan. The Satan, the opposer, the dragon who's in the garden, the one who tempted Job, the one who's the opponent of the people of God. Oh, that's okay. So he's a biblical figure. Who's, who's the male child who'll rule the nations with a rod of iron? Who's the squill with a bushy tail? And the, <laughs> the answer is Jesus. Yeah, because Psalm 2 is a royal psalm in anticipation of the Messiah, who, the king who is to come, who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. So the male child is Jesus, born of, who's the, who's the woman? In just go back to 676 in the Old Testament 676 allusions to the Old Testament where in the Old Testament do we find a woman who is in the pains of childbirth waiting to be delivered the answer is in Isaiah 6 in Micah chapter 4 and Micah 6 it's the people of God when they are in exile and they're oppressed by their enemies it's like they're in the birth pangs here's a joke coming up Waiting to be delivered. Ba-dum. Yeah? Ha-ha. Because a woman who's pregnant is delivered, and the people of God in oppression are delivered by God. Do you see? And the point is that once you're in the pains of childbirth, when you experience delivery, you forget all the pain. I tell you what, when my kids were born, it was exhausting. I thought I couldn't, honestly. <laughs> I was told, bring sandwiches, bring a book to read. I didn't have a moment's rest. You know, my wife's in labor. I was her pain relief, rubbing her back. I was exhausted. I, I, kids were born, I went straight to bed. I might have to look after the baby anyway, but, anyway. but that's, that's the image. So, because we're looking for how John is using the Old Testament, and he's giving very clear allusions. So, Paul uses the same kind of language. The weirdest verse in the New Testament is Galatians 4, verse 19. I, Paul says to the Galatians, I'm in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So, it's an image of eschatological judgment and deliverance. So, the people of God give birth to Messiah, and the dragon is pursuing. So, well, we know the characters, but the story's a bit weird. So here's the structure. We've got that story, and then we've got the next bit, which is all about Michael and the angels, which is drawing language from Jewish combat stuff, and Satan is expelled. And then we get the next section, which is this hymn, and then we go back to the original story. So I think the first thing is a bit weird. The second thing is kind of making it clearer, because it's about Michael, who stands up for Israel and defeats uh, the, 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 the prince of darkness. And then in verse 10, 11, and 12, we get the explanation clear as daylight. In case you hadn't understood the first bit or the second bit, let me explain to you. Now has come the defeat of the Satan, the throwing down of the accuser of enemies. For the victory has been won by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And the blood of the Lamb means Jesus' death on the cross, because he's the Lamb on the throne, and the word of their testimony is us, the people of God, who are living out the reality of that and testify to the faithfulness of Jesus. So Satan is defeated by Jesus' cosmic work in all times and we experience that victory as we continue as faithful witnesses and follow his calling to live faithful to him in, in the face of tribulation. So the answer is it really is all about Jesus. And then we go back. So then we have the woman, the people of God, with her offspring who are in the desert. Why are we in the desert? Because we've been set free from slavery... We have not yet entered the promised land. This is a time of journeying. 
for 42 months. How long were the people of Israel in the desert in Exodus? No, they weren't. They were there for 42 years because they had two years in Kadesh Barnea first. 40 years is just an approximation. It was actually 42. We are the people of God in the wilderness, having been set free, heading to the promised land. How many places did they stop? Book of Numbers, chapter 33, lists all the places they stopped, count them up. Guess how many there are? 42. So, this is a picture. Revelation 12 is a picture of what it means to be faithful to Jesus as we journey as we experience the liberation that he's given us through his death. Not, not he is our Passover lamb, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, therefore let us celebrate the feast. But he is the Passover lamb who was sacrificed on the cross from us, therefore the angel of death has passed over us, death has been swallowed up in victory, but we don't yet realize it, we're on our journey to the promised land and the best is yet to be. That's what Revelation is all about, that's what this central chapter is all about. It's about us being protected from Satan. The earth, Satan spews out water. He opposes the people of God. But the created order is on our side because it's created and blessed by God. Therefore, the earth swallows up the water. Satan cannot defeat us because we are living out the purposes of God in God's world, even though the world opposes him. How about that? But that's just saying the same as everything. It's what Paul says in his letters. It's what Jesus says in the Gospels, isn't it? It's just the same stuff, but it's said in a particular symbolic way. So, and the reason why you don't recognize it is because if I tell you this story, you'll begin to recognize this. Let me read you a story. Python, the son of terror, was a huge dragon. He was accustomed to giving oracles on Mount Parnassus before the time of Apollo. So it's on the black screen, next screen. It's on your handout as well, actually. He was informed by an oracle he'd be destroyed by an offspring of Leto. At that time, Zeus, naughty boy, was living with Leto. And when Zeus's wife Hera learned of this, she decreed that Leto should give birth at a place where the sun does not reach. When Python was perceived that Leto was pregnant by Zeus, he began to pursue her in order to kill her. But by the order of Zeus, the north wind Aquilo lifted Leto up and carried her to Poseidon. Poseidon protected her, but in order not to rescind Hera's decree, he carried her to the island Ortigia, covered the island with waves. Python did not find Leto, he returned to Parnassus. Then Poseidon returned the island Ortigia to the upper region. Later it was called Delos, which is right next to Patmos, where John was. There, holding on to an olive tree, Leto gave birth to Apollo and Artemis, to whom Hephaestus gave arrows as a gift. Four days after they were born, Apollo avenged his mother. He went to Panassus and killed Python with arrows. Now, the reason why that's important is because that story was mythology that the emperors used to say who they were. Domitian said, I am Apollo. I defeat the chaos monster. Come inside. Be loyal to me. Bow down to me, and I will give you peace and prosperity. And John is saying, that's a lie. John is saying the emperor is actually in league with the chaos monster and the real Apollo is Jesus. He's the one who defeats the forces of chaos. Therefore, you can't simply bow down to Domitian and the emperor but also worship Jesus. You're going to have to make a decision. You're going to have to choose where your loyalty lies. That leads us very nicely on to calculating the number of the beast. Shall we do that? Yeah, I promised you would. And look, we've still got at least five minutes to do it in. It's going to be great. Can we, can, we, can we just stretch and have a few minutes for questions after? Do you have to absolutely finish at one? Or should I just hang around the back? What do you want to do? Would you like some questions and answers? So, can you cope with that? Is that all right? Okay. We have covered quite a lot, haven't we? <laughs> okay, okay. So let's, let's calculate. Let's continue on our cross-cultural journey. Right. 
one of the realities of first century life is there are no numbers. Did you realize that? What numbers do we use? What do we call them? Arabic. There's a clue. When did the Arabs conquer the Middle East? In the 8th century. So, it's 7th century, 8th century. Okay, so we're in a, a culture where there's no number system. So what do you use instead of numbers to signify numbers? You use letters. Okay, so can, we have our, can I have my letter scheme up? I'm making you jump around here. Can you get my letter scheme numbers? No, you'd have to, you might have to exit and then come back in. It's the, the one with the, the list of numbers on. You've got it on your handout. That's the one there, okay. So this is the common way to use numbers. So A is one, B is two. If you just keep counting, that's fine to buy apples. It's not enough to hire a donkey. So you want to go... 20, 30, 40, 50, and that's fine for hiring a donkey, but not for renting a house. So then you need to go 200, 300, 400, 500. So that's the same scheme you've got on your handout on page five. If every letter has a number, every name has a value. Right? My name's Ian. A is one. I is 9, that makes 10, N is 50. The number of my name is 60. Is that okay? That's straightforward, isn't it? Okay, what's the number of your name? When you worked it out, call it out. 82. 82. 151. 155. For James. Have you worked out James Di Castiglione? <laughs> Say again, 83. 82, another 82. Have you got the same name? Which whoever else said 82? I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Have you worked out yours, Charlie? 146. 828. 828. 850. Is anybody here called Zbigniew? 490, okay? That's, say? 66. 66, good. Can I just check? <laughs> can I just check there's no one here, there's no one here called David Morgan, is there? If you work out David Morgan, guess what it comes to? 600. I did do this, and I had somebody in my class called David Morgan, and he, we're still friends, fortunately. But we did have to have some prayer ministry afterwards, so... Okay, it's not difficult, is it? It's not difficult once you've gone on that long, complicated journey into a different culture. You see, why do we call, why do we call number 16 square? Why, why is that a square number? One's not square, six isn't a square. Why do we call it a square number? Because only if you have 16 objects, you can arrange them in a square shape, you see. So even the way we talk about numbers betrays the fact that really numbers are about concrete things. We live in a very abstract world. We live in what's called a placeholder symbolic number system, which is quite sophisticated. The number one means one, but it's got another number behind it. It means 10. If it's got two numbers, it means 100. Do you realize that? That's complicated. When you move a digit, it means something different, symbolically. So they live in a different world where numbers are very tangible. Okay, so, so if I say to you, my, I love her whose number is 545. Can you tell me who it is? Why not? I've given you the code. <laughs> she had to call Maggie, but I don't know what her number is. But 
But if you go to, if you go to Pompeii, you'll find that scratched in a wall. I love her number is 545. In fact, in one place, you'll find a thing saying, I love her as number is 79. When you go into one of the rooms, it says, I was with this woman. It gives you the name. And when you work out the name and you translate it into Greek, it works out to be that number. So in the public space, he's put it in code. And in the private space, he's given the name away. And you see, he, she who is 545, she'll know that's her number. And go, oh, he loves me. Fortunately, her father won't recognize it. It's quite good, isn't it? It's called a, a public key cryptography or a trapdoor code because you can encode, but you can't decode. It's the same kind of method by which you can buy things on Amazon. Because Amazon publishes a key to your computer. Your computer encodes your credit card number, and then Amazon can recognize it, but nobody else can, which is a good job. Otherwise, your credit card will be scammed. Right? When we get supercomputers that can crack those codes, we're stuffed. But that's another subject altogether. Okay? So, let's do it. It says, Revelation 13, 18 says what? The one who has wisdom, let them calculate, so Fidzo, the number of the beast. So shall we calculate the number of the beast? For it's a, a person's name. It's a person's number. So give, 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 me a, give me a name, just at random. We talked about the Roman Empire. We talked about opposition to the people of God. Just give me a name. Pluck a name out of the air. Nero. Nero. Thank you. Completely unprompted. Thank you very much. Let's try it. Okay, so you need to move on to the next but one slide. Okay, so let's do, there we go, that's 545. By the way, the name Jesus adds up to 888 if you do that. It's interesting, isn't it? Because he was raised on the eighth day. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Sunday, the eighth day, it's the new age. Seven days of this age, eighth day is the new age. The resurrection is the new age. That's why we worship on a Sunday, because we step into the kingdom that is to come when we worship together on a, on a, on a res day of the day of resurrection. Do more about that tomorrow. Okay, so keep going, keep going, keep going, right, okay, here we go. The number of the beast, well, the Greek word for beast is therion. There it is, you can read it, I can give you my Greek text, see you. I'm going to write that in, in there it is in Greek, I'm going to write it in Hebrew letters, it's also on your handout, uh, and let's just add up the numbers, just what we've done. Oh, sorry, that doesn't work, the Hebrew isn't working there. So, but take it from me, the letters are 400 plus 200 plus 10 plus 650, can anyone add that up, please, for me? Ah, oh, the number of the beast is 666. So John's readers are going, well, we know that. Thank you, John. And the number is a man's name. Let's do it with Nero Caesar. We know that he spelt his name with an N on the end in inscriptions, Neron Caesar. Let's read, write it in Greek, Neron Caesar. This is supposed to be in Hebrew letters, but you haven't got Hebrew on your computer. So Neron Caesar, that's how it works. 50, 250, 256, 306, 406, 466, 666. This is the person that John is referring to. And we're not going to be surprised, are we? Because the whole of Revelation is about saying, you cannot worship the emperor and worship Jesus as Lord at the same time. Because only one of them is the Prince of Peace. Only one of them is the true Lord. Only one of them is the one you can trust with your eternal destiny. You cannot compromise. So we're not, we're not too surprised. Now, if you, anyone is still sceptical, can you please call out if you have a footnote in your Bible on Revelation 13, 18? Do you have a footnote in your Bible? Anybody? What, yeah? Has anybody a footnote? What does the footnote say? Some ancient manuscripts say... 
616. And that's because Greek is an inflected language. If you say the number of the beast, it becomes therion instead of therion, and you lose the N at the end, so you lose 50, so it becomes 616. And if you write Nero Caesar rather than Neron Caesar, you also lose 50. So the number of the beast and the number of the man is 616. So clearly the person who copied that manuscript knew what John was saying and thought he got his maths wrong and corrected it. Are you convinced? Because <laughs> just understanding of that shows you how that other reading has arisen. There's no other explanation for that, really. Okay, so and this is where we're going to finish. How does that help us today? And go on to the next slide. Okay, the problem, people, the reason why we get in a mess with Revelation not is because we don't recognize genre, because we don't read it carefully, we don't know the Old Testament, we don't do the history and geography and so on. But the primary reason we get it wrong, because we think Revelation was written to us. It was not. And John makes that really clear. It's a gift for us, but it was written to the Christians in the first century in the Roman province of Asia. So instead of doing a straight line, keep going, between 666 and things in our world like Adolf Hitler, climate change, sorry, that's a bit of a pun there, just involved, worth his expense, Rome, Roman, you know, uh, uh, Luther's Bible has a picture of the Pope wearing a tiara, riding the beast, Revelation chapter 17, you see, or barcodes, because every book you buy has got triple bar, triple bar, triple bar, which says number six, number six, number six. Have you heard that theory? Okay, if you, have, if you haven't, forget it. Don't worry, it's misleading. You see, but John was not writing to us. He was writing to the people he was writing to. It's a letter. He says that. So what do we do with it? How do we understand this? We need to go on a journey, an interpretive journey. We need to go on a cross-cultural journey and hear what God is saying to us through what John was saying to them. So keep going on the slides. We go on this detour and we say, well, actually, 666 is a reference to Roman imperial power. And John describes that as the beast. What does the beast look like? The beast demands your total allegiance. The beast demands control of your finances. The beast uh, is concerned with images and with worship and with loyalty. The beast claims that it itself is the only source of peace and prosperity. The beast puts itself in the place of God and claims the loyalty that only God deserves. So the question we've got to ask is, where is the beast now? If you lived in Soviet Russia, Soviet Union as a Christian, I suspect you might have looked to Stalin. If you lived in Iraq, you might have looked at Saddam Hussein. If you live in China today, you might see the Communist Party as demanding those things, the allegiance that only God deserves and promising to deliver only through the things that God can give. So the question for us is where do we see the beast in our culture? What's the ideology that demands uncompromising loyalty that trucks no question? What's the culture that controls our finances? What's the culture that's obsessed with image? What's the culture that promises to give us peace and satisfaction if only we will give unquestioning loyalty to it? Does consumerism fit the bill? Does the world of global capital? Neoliberal economics? If only you pursue the right career, if only you invest in the right things, if only you buy a house at the right time, then you'll have everything that life can offer. You'll have peace and prosperity. You won't worry about a thing. Maybe that is what uh, 
the, the, the challenge that we have to face. Maybe that's the thing. When we look at our most churches, not so much here, we look at our churches and, you know, the, the, the great exodus of young people from our church. Why? Because if you live in a consumer culture where you can choose your own identity, where you can define yourself by what you buy, why would you ever commit yourself to live a faithful life following a 2,000-year-old Jew from, from an obscure corner of an empire? Discipleship makes no sense in a consumer culture. And I think the problem we've got as a church is that we've been stolen the march by an ideology which we haven't engaged with. And the main reason we haven't engaged with it is because we haven't read the book of Revelation. We haven't recognized that we're in an ideological battle. Hey, I'm going to finish with a joke. A man, successful businessman, dies and he goes to heaven and he reaches the pearly gates. And Peter checks his name on the book of life and says, yeah, you're here and you can come in. And the man says... Now, look, Peter, I've worked really hard. You know, I'd like to bring something with me. And Peter goes, sorry, it's against the rules. You come on your own just as you are. He goes, no, really, no, really, please. And he goes, all right, Peter, don't tell anyone. I'll let you do it. So you've got 24 hours. So the man goes up, and he sells all his business interests. He sells his, you know, his whole empire and all his possessions. And he buys ingots of gold. Because he's really wealthy. He can buy quite a few. He puts them in a suitcase. He comes up. And he comes back 24 hours later, comes to the pearly gates. Pearly gates, Revelation 21, by the way, gates made of pearl. And Peter says, yeah, checks him on the list. That's right, yeah, I saw you yesterday. Come on, come on through. You can bring, bring your suitcase, but don't tell anybody. So he goes through with his suitcase. And he comes, Peter, he's just passing through. Peter says, by the way, what, what have you got in there? God, he's so proud, the man. He says, right. So he puts the suitcase down, opens up. Beautiful, gleaming, glistening gold. Look at this, he says, my life's achievement. And Peter looks at him and says, you bought paving stones. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on the Roots podcast. To connect with our community and to find other resources, visit chanctonbury.org.uk.